part of the former temple under Herbert Armstrong uh, went back into Babylon and died. And a new message starts in chapter 40. And to me it is incredible to think that this story, as we're going through it, is something that is not just prophetic. It's something that part of it now has already occurred, some is happening, and some is about to. So what we're reading here in Isaiah 40, in a prophecy of the end time, is about what is happening right now. It isn't something way off in the future. It isn't something to think about. But it's something that is already going on. And to be able to see Worldwide Church of God in Ezekiel 17, to see how it died in Revelation 3, to see how Herbert Armstrong was a type of Hezekiah in these preceding chapters, puts us on this timeline that no one grasps, that no one understands. So he tells us in the beginning of this, where it starts in chapter 40, to comfort, to give hope to God's people that their troubles are ending, that they are about to be blessed, and that we are to make a way for Christ to do a work in the wilderness to prepare for that, and how He is about to knock down the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the the, the uh, governments, perhaps physical mountains as well in some cases, and how He will reveal His glory in verse 5. So part of it is still about to happen. Some of it is already. We've been giving a message of comfort and hope now for quite some time, just before he begins to reveal his glory and do these things, and how the people is his grass, and uh, the people are going to be decimated and wither and die. And then he mentions how we have good tidings in verses 9 and verse 10 about good things that are about to happen and how he will begin to feed his flock like a shepherd and pick us up in his arms instead of turning his face away from us in disgust as has been the case for the last 30 years or more. And then he talks about how great he is in the next verses and then gives us some hope down in verse 20 of chapter 40. How he gives power to the faint and to them that have no might, he increases strength. And even though in society and wherever, the youths will faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. People who normally would have a lot of strength and energy will run out of strength and energy. But there's a category of people that won't. They that wait upon the eternal shall renew their strength. So this is talking about older people who have already lost their strength. And how that is going to be renewed. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. It'll be like they can fly <laughs> uh, in comparison to the crippling around that we do now. They shall run and not be weary or tired. How far can you run right now without getting weary and tired or having a heart attack? 
and they shall walk and not faint. So those who patiently wait and are depending on God are going to be renewed and have strength beyond what they normally would have, and even the youth out in the world can't handle it. But old people who were called can. Remember, this is talking about that generation that will not die out before Christ returns. So it's speaking of old people, old people who can compare the former temple with that which is about to be built, the latter temple. So it's old people that he's renewing here. And that has to be referenced to people who are left in the church, particularly the 10% that he is going to call out. The others will not be renewed. They'll go into the tribulation and die there. So in chapter 41, with that background, he says, Keep silent before me, O coasts, and let the people renew their strength. So there is a tumult out here of people worshiping Satan, following their own ways, doing their own thing, And he said, shut up, keep silence before me, and let the people renew their strength. So he's just talked about how he is going to renew us, and he said, there are some that will be renewed. Let them come near, then let them speak. So those who wait upon God and trust in him, will be brought near him. He says, seek him and we'll find him, and he will be found of us when we seek him with our whole heart. So they said, let them come near him. Remember how Christ told the disciples, let the little children come to me, bring them near me, let me hold them. He mentioned that about feeding his flock and carrying them just a few verses back. So he's inviting his people to come to be renewed, to come near him and let them speak and let us come near together to judgment. So they will be combining with him. He says he's coming to dwell with us there in Zechariah 2. And we can be together and come to correct and proper judgments, proper decisions to get things squared away. So he tells the world, the coastlines out there, uh, keep silent. Uh, I'm about to do something. And I want certain people to come near and speak. I want them with me. Then he says, Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings. He gave them as the dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. So he says he's going to make Zerubbabel a signet or a banner or a flag to carry God's flag. And that's in Haggai 2. Here he says he's going to raise him up and the nations will be nothing before him. Now, if you compare that with Revelation 11, where it mentions some of the plagues of Egypt and how the Egyptian empire was absolutely 
destroyed in front of the plagues that Moses, or God through Moses, sent. So he's going to give that same kind of power again. So he raised up a righteous man from the east. Now, if he was in the east and comes from the east, where is he coming? He's coming to the west. You don't go, if you come from the east, you're going west. So here's somebody who's been in the east and will come west and called him to his foot. Well, where is Christ's foot going to be? He says he's going to come dwell with us in Zion. So Christ is going to be here. So he's going to bring somebody from the east out west where his foot is. Isn't that simple? So we're looking for someone to be coming to us from the east. And he's, he's the one that he's going to give power over the nations, as Revelation 11 says. So this righteous man from the east has to be one of the two witnesses. They're the ones that are given power. Revelation 11 makes that very clear. He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. So, he's going to go places he hasn't been. What does it say? The gospel must be preached around the world as a witness. So, the ones who are doing this, and particularly the leader here, has to go places he's never been before all over the world. The gospel will be preached in person around the world, not just by television and radio. So, who has worked and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? Now, God has called all the generations from Adam right on down. He's worked with all those generations, worked a work in some of them, and here he's doing another work. So God says, I'm the one that was here from the beginning. Uh, I am he. First and with the last, I am he. Now this is interesting the way he puts this. Who has worked and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? So he says, I'm the one who started all of this in the beginning and I not only am the first, I'll be with the last. He's not saying here he's the first and the last. He's saying I am the first and I will be with the last. So he's speaking to this last generation and he who will be the leader of the work in the last time. Now, he is the first and the last, but he will be with the last. He makes that point here. They're not going to be out there on their own doing nothing, but I'll be with them. <clears throat> or particularly this one that he's calling from the east. The coasts, or the peoples, the land, saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid drew near, and came. Now, who does he say is going to be afraid and come to work? 
10% of his remnant from all over the earth, from the ends of the earth. He says a little later on here in the same context, from the north, south, east, and west. He's going to bring them from everywhere. So they saw this when God began to raise someone up and show some power, and they feared and came. Now, it was the right kind of fear, right? It was an awe. It was a respect. It wasn't that they're afraid that this man was going to kill them. It says he'll bring the sword and the bow, and that's enough to scare you not to come. You might be killed. But these see that this is a righteous man from the east who is given this kind of power, but it is not a danger to them. It's a danger to the world, but not to them. So they stand in great awe and fear of the power that God is giving, and they draw near and come. Well, the only ones that we know of or the scriptures we've read in Isaiah 6 and in Haggai and other places where it says that a remnant, a 10%, are going to come. <clears throat> now, how do we know this is talking of them? Well, it's the only group that's ever singled out, for one thing. But here in verse 6, it says, They helped everyone, his neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, Be of good courage. So these are people who have come to work. Now what does God say in Haggai? He says, I will stir a remnant to come and work. And they will build my temple. So these are people who are working. It says, so the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith. Must have some gold. God says the gold and the silver is mine in Haggai, and we're going to read about the gold and the silver here again in just a couple, three chapters. Uh, the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smoothed with the hammer, him that smote the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. And he fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. So they're obviously doing a work. They're building something using nails, using solder, using gold, uh, wood. The carpenter. Uh, you don't nail. You don't nail steel. Steel. You nail wood. That's where a carpenter comes in. And doesn't he say there in Ezra that it was built with uh, what was it? Four rows of wood, uh, as I recall. I'm not exactly how, sure how many rows that was. I think it was four. And he tells us to go, and then Haggai says, go up into the mountains and bring wood and build a temple. So it may be covered with gold, but the basis, it appears, is going to be wood. So this is the work that goes on when God brings leadership from the east, and the work begins. He says, but you, Israel, are my servant. Now, can you say that Israel today is God's servant? I mean, physical Israel? No. We read in Ezekiel 5 and other places that the nations of Israel are about to be taken back into captivity and be diminished by 90% plus. So they're not God's servants. Who are these who are building? 
So it's spiritual Israel he's talking about. They will come and build. So he says, but you, spiritual Israel, you could put in there, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Now look around, and you can see whom God has chosen here at the end. Many were chosen. We know church members around the world. I visited church members on several continents, in fact, uh, in doing the work. So, these are some who have been chosen out of the world, especially Israel, some Gentiles, but mostly Israelites, and most of them were called in North America, the U.S. and Canada, and then England, and then it goes downhill from there, Australia, and then the Gentile countries, fewer. But first to Israel, then to the Gentile. So, we are among the chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. So these are chosen ones to do this work. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth <clears throat> and called you. Many are, cho- many, are, few are, many are called, few are chosen. So he called from the chief men thereof and said to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you away. Now, didn't he vomit out or cast away the church? Yes, he did. And then out of that, he chooses some and draws them near in fear of him, and they are not cast away. This is talking about the end-time church. This is talking about right now. You are in the Bible. Do we get that? What Mr. Armstrong said, the Bible was written for the church. Then here at the end, it is the church the Bible is talking about. Do we make that connection? I hope we do. This isn't talking about some hypothetical bunch of people somewhere. It's talking about us. That's not vanity. That's not ego. You can look around and see the ones that God called. You see, you go to the feast and see thousands here and thousands there and thousands somewhere else. You could go across the land from city to city and do congregations of God's people who knew God's truth. That's who he's talking about in the prophecies, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation. He's talking about us, the church. Not the Catholics, not the Muslims, not the Japanese, except them unless they're called. So this is written about you and me. Now, is that encouraging or what? It's exciting to open the book of Isaiah or anywhere else you want to go in this book and realize it's talking about you. Not somebody else. You. Me. All of us. He wrote this for us, upon whom the ends of the world have come. Now that should scare us. (laughs) You know? You're not reading the hypothetical. You're reading 
what is happening right here and now. <clears throat> I've chosen you and not cast you away. Fear you not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. So when these things come to pass more and more, I'm not saying in the near future, some of it's already occurring. We're already hearing a message of comfort and hope. We're already getting good news and good tidings of Jerusalem and Zion. We're being told the story here. It's being preached to us right here from the Scripture itself. So he says, don't fear. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you by my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against you shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with you shall perish. Just like Zechariah, I mean, uh, Jeremiah 11 says, those who have been our enemies here at Anatot are going to perish. They will be ashamed and confounded first before they perish. We have nothing to worry about if we fear and obey God. He says there in Ezekiel, chapter 2 or 3, you'll dwell with scorpions. <laughs> Don't worry about it. They're not going to hurt you. Where is our faith? We had a hearing just yesterday or a, a meeting to try to make this current lawsuit go away through negotiation. And those who have stolen $40,000 worth of rent and lease payments are still trying to take hold of the land, and they're demanding more, not less. They're not willing to give back what they stole. They, want, they will not be happy, and I told the lawyers that, until they own all the land and I am gone. And then they fight among themselves over it. It isn't going to happen. We didn't give them nothing yesterday. They kept demanding more. I told my lawyer, we ought to demand something from them. You give us some land back, not you give us give you more land. It's ridiculous. God will take care of it. I'm not a bit worried about it. They will be ashamed and confounded and become as nothing and they that strive with you shall perish. It's talking about those that are fighting us right now. That's this work. Where is this message coming from? Go back and read Isaiah 40, a message of comfort and hope for God's people to do His work. I'll tell you, I'll show you in just a minute. It's not coming from anywhere but here. Verse 12, you shall seek them and shall not find them. They're going to be gone. Even them that contended with you. They that war against you shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. 
All that they're trying to do is going to come to nothing. Now, that includes the current ones, and it includes any in the future, like the Assyrian army who comes. Because Micah 5 says, we'll send out seven, even eight uh, principal men, and they'll turn the Assyrian away. So, he can take care of this little problem we have at the moment, and he can take care of the bigger problems as they come. So, it's about all of it. Anybody who fights against those who are bringing the message of good are going to be confounded and destroyed, whoever they are. For I, the Eternal, your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. He's going to hold our right hand. When you hold somebody's hand, that is a sign of friendship, of caring, of love, of desire toward that person. It's a comfort, it's a strength, it's a power. When God says, or Christ says, I will hold your hand, that means he's taking care of you. Now, if a man... His wife are walking along, and it's muddy or windy or cold, and he takes her hand or he puts his arm around her and holds her close. It's a message of comfort, of warmth, of closeness. That's what he's telling us here. I'm going to be close with you. I will hold your hand. Don't worry. Do we believe him? I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, and you few men of Israel. Just says men of Israel in King James, but in the uh, Hebrew, you few men of Israel. So here he makes it clear he's not talking about the whole of Israel that's going into captivity. He's talking about the few men of Israel who obey him. He's not going to hold the hand of the world. He's not going to hold the hand of this nation. He's going to hold the hand of the few men and women who serve him and obey him. Those are the ones he will take care of. I will help you, says the Eternal, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So he is our Redeemer, who has been at this time redeemed from the world. Just the church. We're the only ones that have been redeemed. Behold, I will make you a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and shall make the hills as chaff. Isn't that what he says about the righteous man from the east? Just a few verses back. I will give them as dust to the sword and stubble to his bow. So he's not in, not talking about just one man here. He's talking about the few men of Israel. And he'll make the church, the remnant, the called out ones, a fresh threshing instrument, sharp, having teeth. There's another place he says he'll give us the hooves of iron and the horns of brass. 
and make us a sharp threshing instrument. Micah 4, 5 through there. You shall fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the eternal, and shall glory in the Holy One of Israel. So anybody who comes against God's people will just be like they were, you were on a blanket, and you toss it up in the air, and it just, they just blow away. Not much problem there. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue fails for thirst, I, the Eternal, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. What did Christ say in his own words when he was here? I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be there. And he says it here. That really in the New Testament is a quote from back here. So, what is there to be, as Amos says? A famine in the land. A famine not of bread and water, but a famine of the word. So, when the poor and needy seek water, and there isn't any, famine of the word, their tongue fails for thirst, I will hear them. I will not forsake them. I'll take care of them. He says, I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Isaiah 51 says he'll make it like the Garden of Eden. I do believe this is speaking both physically and spiritually. If we are to be a light to the world, then they have to look and see what God has done, right? Now, if he just blesses us with good doctrine and good teaching, and he's only talking about removing the famine of the Word, the world can't see that. How is that a light to them? But if he removes the physical famine and lack as well, then that is a light to the world that God is doing something that they can see. Because the world is going to go into famine and pestilence and disease. This nation, right here. Ezekiel says, Israel, Ephraim. So, there will be a lack of food and lack of water. This is upon us as well. I've been reading a lot of articles lately about how there are problems with the weather and the crop production around the world. And we've had some terrible weather both last spring and this fall that have decimated the harvest. And that may be felt very soon. And both not only in higher prices for food, but perhaps... It is the beginning of the lack of food as well. So when he says, I will do this, he's talking about spiritually and physically. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir, the pine, and the box tree. So seven trees he mentions. 
That's the seven churches in type. He says seven women will take hold of one man there in Isaiah 4, I believe it is. So the seven churches, whether you use the analogy of women or trees, will take hold of this one righteous man from the east. And above that, they'll take hold of Christ. I mean, it's always, it's always about God. It's always about Christ. But he uses types. And Zerubbabel, in that sense, is a type of Christ. And they take hold of him as a physical leader. Not in the same way they did Herbert Armstrong in Ezekiel 17, where it says instead of becoming a great tree, it became a spreading vine and took hold of him. And then when Tkach replaced him, they grew toward him. Here, he says, I will take a twig and I will plant it and it will grow into a flourishing tree and the birds will be on its boughs. In other words, it will be a glorious tree. It will be far better than the former temple, which is what he says the latter temple will be. So he's going to plant these seven trees in the wilderness, in Zion, in the Jerusalem area, the true Jerusalem, in her own place, as Zechariah 12 says. Why? That they may see and know and think about or consider and understand together. So he's going to bring people from all seven of the varieties of church that we have today, the attitudes of Revelation 2 and 3 are throughout the church. I don't spend a lot of time trying to identify who the seven might be today. When you're broken into 400 pieces, how are you going to identify seven out of that? I don't know that you necessarily can, but you can see the attitudes both in yourself and in others, that are in those seven. I can read through chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, and I can find some element of myself in all seven of them. Can't you? So it's seven attitudes. It's seven approaches. It's seven types of Christian, if you will. Seven types of church member. And so he's going to bring them together, 10% of them, that they may see these things and know them and think about them or meditate on them and then understand them all together. Now, what does he tell us in Zechariah 4? That the two witnesses are the same as those in Revelation, the two oil trees, and that they will be feeding all seven of the candlesticks, the golden oil that God has given them. He says he will put his spirit upon them, and they'll be able then to teach these people so that they might all see and know and consider and understand together. Their first job is to the church. And he even says there in Revelation 11, 1 and 2, Leave out the court of the Gentiles. Just go to those at the altar, the ministry, and those that worship there, the people of the church. Leave out the Gentiles or the unconverted 
at first. Later on in that chapter, he says, now go to the world and preach and put plagues on them, whatever you need to do. But the first job is to the church. And he'll plant trees in the wilderness, church members, that can be taught and understand together. That the hand of the eternal has done this. You look at it. Here come these signs and wonders of Zechariah 3 that cause them to look to the rock, which is Christ. And that's scary. But they come to help and to build in the temple. So, Uh, they will understand that this is something God is doing by signs, by wonders, by gathering together into a wilderness place. There they will learn and be taught, and they'll realize that only God could have done this. That's the whole point, that God has created it. God has done it. No man can do it. See, we've, we've been understanding this story now for over 23 years. And just understanding it and preaching it and putting it on the Internet has not caused anything to happen. Basically nothing. Right? It's only when the element of God begins to do His signs and His wonders that people are stirred and come. So, it's not something you and I could do. It's not something this little group could do here in the desert. He brought us to the right place, to Zion. But we can do nothing of ourselves. Nothing. Even that which he did send has diminished down to almost nothing. So, that's humbling. And yet at the same time, it's encouraging because he says, I'm going to be with the few men of Israel and I'm going to bless them. And then they're going to come. I'll plant them in the wilderness, in the desert. So it's not in the northeast. It's not in the southeast. It's not in the Pacific Northwest. It's out here in the desert. That's where he planted Worldwide Church of God in the first place. Plucked off a twig in Oregon, moved it to a city of traffic in Pasadena, L.A., the Southwest Desert. So where he did that work, he's going to do the other work, except it's not going to be in L.A., it's going to be at Zion. But the same type of uh, terrain, the same type of, uh, of desert and wilderness. But God has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So then he throws a challenge. Produce your cause, says the Eternal. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the King of Jacob. And let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Now he's laying out here for us what he is going to do, and he's already started it. We responded to Micah 4 and moved out of the city out here to the wilderness... So he started this. He's given us the message to preach. 
So he says, show me, show us. Tell us what's going to happen. They can't. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them. How many of them understand the work of Herbert Armstrong in Ezekiel? I mean, in, uh, as a, in, about Hezekiah there in chapters 36 through 39. How many understand to this day that he didn't preach the gospel around the world as a witness? Some of them still think he did. He was the Elijah to come. Might have been a minor type, but he wasn't the final. Show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, that which has already occurred. They still don't even understand that. How many understand church of Herbert Armstrong was Sardis and not Philadelphia? Most of them still think they're Philadelphians having been part of Worldwide. Come on. Can you even explain what's already happened? No, they can't. They don't have a clue. Don't know what's just happened to them. They think they're still okay. We'll just go on preaching the gospel. Show us what will happen. Where are you going to go and find a message of coming out here and God renewing the desert and taking 10% and rebuilding the temple? You can't go to any of these churches of God and hear that message. They don't understand it. They don't have a clue. So God challenges them. Show us what's already happened, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare us the things to come. You can't even tell us what has happened and what then is the latter end of it, and you can't say what is about to happen. So here we are in the middle of it, and most of the church still has no clue what has happened, what is going on right now, and what is about to happen. They can't answer it. Do you know any place you can go that can answer it? No, you don't. I'll prove that to you in a minute. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Come on, do something and show us so we can be absolutely impressed. It is not going to happen. Behold, you are of nothing, and your works of nothing, and abomination is he that chooses you. Now, we have a lot of organizations out there that they're nothing. Their work is doing nothing. I've expressed this in many different ways over the years. And not only that, it's an abomination for someone to choose you. Don't we realize it's an abomination to go to Cherry Flurry or to United or any of these groups? It's an abomination because God is not there and He's not doing the work. They're doing their own work. God did what? 
Let's face it, once and for all. We were so bad in God's stomach that he puked us all out and scattered us. What is the greatest testimonial of a bad dinner? Puking it out. Now, sometimes a dinner might upset your tummy a little, and, uh, yeah, you can handle it, and it finally goes away, and things kind of go the normal way. But sometimes what you eat or drink is so bad that you vomit. Now, that's what we became to God, all of us. And how can a piece of vomit stand up and say, I'm doing the work of God? God just expressed his feelings by puking us out. And then we say, having wiped ourselves off a little bit, we're the Philadelphia church. The rest of you are Laodiceans, but we're the Philadelphians, and that's almost universal. Almost every group still think they're Philadelphia. I hope we realize by now we are not the Philadelphia church. We are recovering, repenting Laodiceans, hoping to be included when God calls the Philadelphia church together 10% of what was vomit and cleans it up brings it into the wilderness, and teaches it that we might see and know and consider and understand together. Then is when the Philadelphia church appears, the one to whom he will protect from the tribulation to come. Worldwide Church of God was not protected from the tribulation to come, was it? No, the tribulation hasn't come, and it's dead and gone. So it wasn't protected from the tribulation. It wasn't Philadelphia. Philadelphia has to still exist when the tribulation starts. Or it has to commence and be drawn together and therefore be there when the tribulation starts because its leaders are going to be preaching to the world. So Philadelphia does not today exist. I don't care what people think. Worldwide is dead. It's gone. Laodicea is still scattered and not been drawn together. Ten percent of it will repent as God instructs in Revelation 3, and I hope you and I are part of it. We are recovering Laodiceans. We are not Philadelphians. And anybody that says they are today have no clue of the story in the Bible. They don't know what's going on. So if you go to any of them, he says you're choosing an abomination. Now, a piece of vomit is pretty abominable, isn't it? Do you pick through your vomit and grab a few things in there and re-eat them? That's something I've never done. I don't think I ever will. Got to be cleaned up. 
Now, God is going to take some of that puke. He's going to clean it up. And then he is going to hold its hand and make Philadelphia out of it. It's a, an event in the future yet to come. It isn't in the distant future. It's in the near future. Because this story is about now. And if you choose any of those groups and go with them and worship with them, it is an abomination to God. Why would you go and join up with or even visit that which is an abomination to God having been puked out? And you're going to go there to be taught? I don't think so. Verse 25, I have raised up one from the north. Now, isn't this what he says there in Ezekiel 17? Worldwide became a low-spreading vine, and its leader died, and it got wiped out, basically. Uh, Tkachis took over in an area that had planted, been planted in a good spot with basically good doctrine, and they blew that, got rid of that, and went off back into Babylon and the rest were just simply scattered everywhere and had become an abomination before God, which he puked out. But he says there at the end of Ezekiel 17, I will pluck a twig from the green tree. Those who are still alive, who still have life, still green. And I will cause from this a proper tree to grow. Doesn't that fit verse 25? I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun, shall he call upon my name. So this is going to be somebody who came from the north originally. But when he does come west, he's going to come from the east. So that gives us a couple clues. Here's somebody who was probably born and raised in the north, and he'll come from the east when he comes west. And he'll call upon my name, and he shall come upon princes as upon mortar, and as the potter treads clay. Same context as Haggai 2, after the temple is built, where Zerubbabel has made a signet, so this is speaking of the leader of the two witnesses. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know? Now here's a story in here. And God said to these other people, show us what's been. Show us what will be. You can't do it. So then he asked the question. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say he is righteous? Who, where have we heard about this man from the north who's going to come from the east? Who's declared it? You want to go back and listen to a bunch of sermons over the last 23 years? You'll find in their references, and I can think you can pretty well identify who it's talking about. I think I know the man by name. think I've worked with him. 
Where have you heard that? And before time that we may say he is righteous. Yes, there is none that shows. Yes, there is none that declares. Yes, there is none that hears your words. They just don't know. They don't have a clue who is involved, where they're going to come from, where they've been, and where they're headed. Go to United see if you can find that out. Go to Jerry Flurry, see if you can find that out. No, he still thinks he's the Germans are coming and he's going to Petra. Last I heard, anyway. That Herbert Armstrong is to be worshipped. Talks about him more than he does God. There's none that hears the words. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them. So one is going to be sent to talk about those that are to be. Them. Plural. And I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. Not two, not ten, not twenty, not fifty, who know this story. Only one. How beautiful are the feet of him that brings good tidings and joy to Jerusalem and to Zion. They don't even know where Zion is. All the churches, all the spittle that came from worldwide, out of all of them, none know where the promised land is. None of them. They don't know where the true Zion is. They still think it's in the Middle East. They think the true Jerusalem is still in the Middle East. They think the land flowing with milk and honey and water and brass and iron and gold and silver and everything you need is in the Middle East. And it doesn't fit that description whatsoever. But that's what they all think. Only one place will you find the true story. Just once. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, there was no counselor, no preacher, that when I asked of them could answer a word. They don't know the story. When I asked them, what has just been? What is and what shall be and what shall be the latter end of them in verse 22? He says, none of them know. None. There was only one that would come and tell the story. Wasn't that true in Christ's day? Only one, John the Baptist, knew the story. He'd been told the story by his mother and Christ's mother and the two cousins together, comparing notes, they'd heard what Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, had said. So John the Baptist went out and preached Christ and his soon ministry. He was the only one that knew the story. And here in the end, you cannot find it anywhere but here. Sorry. It's the only place you hear this story. No one else knows it. Behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Haven't I been saying that about all these eunuchs in Babylon? 
They go out there and they try to do something and they're just spinning their wheels in futility because nothing's getting done. And the gospel isn't being preached around the world as a witness. It isn't happening. So it's all vanity and nothingness. Their molten images are wind and confusion. So they're sticking to their plan, whatever it is, and it's a confused plan because they don't understand the story. Jerry Flurry talks about Herbert Armstrong more than anything else in his broadcast. That's an idol. He's made an idol of the man. He speaks very little of God and mostly of Herbert Armstrong because that's where he thinks he derives his authority to be Elisha. And it isn't true. And he ain't going to Petra. In fact, Jordan has forbidden him from ever coming back there because of what he teaches. It's all vanity and nothing. And they're molten images. They're idols. They made idols of themselves. They made idols of their work. They made idols of Herbert Armstrong. They made idols of all kinds. And it's confusion in Israel. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. So, this sounds like it's speaking of Christ himself, and yet this is Christ who's doing the speaking. Behold, my servant. That's, that's the voice of Christ. So, it applies to Christ. He's speaking in that sense of himself. But it also applies to a human whom he has appointed who will be a lot like Christ was. I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring judgment. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment to truth. So this is somebody that apparently, for the most part, is pretty mild-mannered, isn't loud-mouthed, and isn't one to go out and cry in the street, uh, but very gentle, kind person, for the most part, obviously. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the coasts shall wait for his law. So, yes, it's God's law. But he's sending someone to be a type of himself and do the things that he wants done. Thus says the eternal God, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which comes out of it, he that gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. Without God, we do nothing. I, the Eternal, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. So this is someone who is not going to preach just to the church, to Israel, but who will become a light to the Gentiles as well. Now he says, leave out the court of the Gentiles in Revelation 11, 1 and 2 until later. Deal with the church 
and the ministry first. Then you're assigned to the nations or to the Gentiles at the end of Haggai 2. The two witnesses will then go to the whole world. Not just to Israel, not just the church. Church first, then Israel, then the whole world. To open the blind eyes to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Going to take them the truth. Going to show them the light. Are they going to repent? No. But he's going to give the message. I am the eternal. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. The world is going to be made aware who God is. How many dozens of times does Ezekiel say, and they shall know that I am the eternal? He's going to leave no question. There's only one God. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isn't he laying that whole story out here in Isaiah? Now, when Isaiah wrote this, 3,000 years ago, roughly, it was about things that would happen later. Now, He told of them long ago. And even now, he's telling us before they happen. Shortly before they happen. Sing to the Eternal a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth. Ye that go down to the sea and all that is therein, the islands, the inhabitants thereof, Sing a song to God about the glorious things that he is about to do. Who? Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice, the villages that Kadar does inhabit. Let the the inhabitants of the rock, Zion, sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Eternal and declare His praise to the coastland. This is in the mountains in Zion in the middle of the southwest. Let them declare God's praise to all the coasts of the earth. Don't we have a new song to sing already? Of the glory of God's deliverance, of how He is going to protect a remnant of His church? And that we've been given this knowledge ahead of time before they spring forth and have opportunity to repent and take advantage of it. We have a song to sing before God that nobody else yet can sing. A song from Zion, about Zion, about God's deliverance that is going to come to Zion. We can sing about Zion from the Psalms, in this old hymn book, and understand a story that nobody else singing those hymns can understand. Do we realize how blessed we are to pick this up and almost any page you turn to out of the Psalms 
it refers to this story that we're reading about right here. And nobody in the church can flesh it out and understand what they're singing about but us. Do you realize how privileged you are? Do you give thanks to God for what you know? Or do we gripe and mumble and complain about the things we wish were? I sat for eight hours yesterday squabbling back and forth with people who are trying to take over this place, who are thieves and liars, but I wasn't worried. Even though they kept asking for more land and more land and even the whole 40 North Acres. And we said no and no and no. And we managed to walk out without giving them anything. They ought to be giving us something of anything. They stole $40,000 that they had pledged to pay by signing a lease that they would pay a 100 a month. And then they quit paying it which is theft. They're liars and thieves. They should have been giving back to us, not us giving them more. I wasn't worried about it because I know this story and that God is going to take care of it. In His own time and way, it will be resolved. We already read that, didn't we? Back here not very far, those that were incensed against you will be ashamed and confounded and be as nothing, and they that strive with you shall die. Jeremiah 11 says, in famine and the sword. That's what's going to happen. So I'm not worried about what they do in court. I'm not worried about what they do in a mediation. God's going to take care of it. Story's already written ahead of time. We can be thankful that we already know the answer. We don't have to worry. Where's faith? Is this about the church? Is this about God and His people and the end time temple? Or is it not? Well, you can't hear it anywhere else. So it's either true or untrue. If it's untrue, you might as well go somewhere else and look for it. New things do I declare before they spring. I have verse 14, I have long... Well, wait a minute, I missed some. Declare his praise. Verse 13, the eternal shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yes, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. Now contrast that with what it said here back in verse 2, he shall not cry nor lift up his voice to be heard. He wouldn't bruise or read. That's one side of Christ. That's not the only side of Christ. Christ was a kind, gentle person when he was here walking the earth. But when he went in on those money changers in the temple, he was not that way. He ran them out of there and put the fear of God in them. <laughs> So, there are many sides to God and to Christ's personalities. One side is verse 2 and 3. Another side is this one we read about here in verse 13. And with Zerubbabel, he will do both. He will be kind and gentle. And that's one side of his personality. 
But he also is going to go against the kings of the earth and have plagues and so on. So, depends on what is being done at the moment for what purpose. Both will come out. I have long time held my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. Wouldn't bruise a reed. I've just sat back and waited. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. Have you heard a woman in childbirth scream? It's a pretty tearing sound. That's the kind of noise Christ is going to make, and he is going to destroy and devour. That's a side of his personality. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up the herbs. I will make the rivers islands, and I will dry up the pools. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make them darkness light before them, and crooked things straight. These things will I do them and not forsake them. So God is going to begin to rip and tear, but he's going to take care of those who wait on him and obey him and renew their strength. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images, that say to the molten images, you are our gods. Only those who seek him are going to be protected and not forsaken. So he says, hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. So the church is blind and deaf and cannot see. And then they're going to see him do some things, and they will turn their eyes to him, as Zechariah 3 clearly says, when he does signs and wonders, at the time the two witnesses begin to appear before men. Then they will see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger that I sent? He's got one from the north. He's going to send from the east. But he says he's deaf and blind for a period of time here. It's his messenger. Who is blind is he that is perfect, and blind is the Lord's servant. Speaking of one man. Seeing many things, but you observe not. Opening the ears, but he hears not. So this servant of God, who is going to come and be the leader, has seen and heard, but he didn't really get it. Then preached to him, but he didn't get it. He denied it. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Type of Moses, who honored the law and magnified it. So this leader that's coming is deaf and blind for a while, doesn't quite get it, but he will. And when he comes, he's already a righteous man, and he will be the leader when he really grasps this story. He hasn't yet. And I don't think he will until he sees 
God turned things around. We'll read that here shortly in Isaiah 52, where the two will see eye to eye when God brings back Zion, that is, when he does the signs and wonders and miracles. Won't see it until then. Because he will see where Christ is doing these things, just like the remnant will. And already being essentially a righteous person, when he sees and hears, believe me, he'll show up. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. Therefore a prey, and none delivers, for a spoil, and none says, Restore. All through the church, that's what they are. They're robbed, they're spoiled, they're snared, they're imprisoned in various ways, and none delivers them. They're a spoil for the preachers to pick on here and there. And no one says, restore, because no one understands the story. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who's going to listen? I said, I'll send one to tell you the story about them. And that's the only place you can get it. Now, who's going to hear it? Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord? Didn't he spew us out his spittle and make us pray to the robbers? And the preachers who are trying to get us to pray and pay for a work they're doing that isn't God's work. It's an abomination. For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient to his law. Therefore he has poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it has set him on fire round about, yet he knew not, and it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. In other words... All this vomiting, all this spewing, all this being made a prey, no one understands. They don't get it. We're being burned by it, but didn't take it to heart and understand what was happening. These prophecies tell us exactly what's happening. But they read them and they don't get it because their eyes have not been opened to see or their ears to hear. They're blind and deaf. And God is going to remove that blindness and deafness by the things that he does very soon. So, this isn't past history. This is now. This is the way things are today. And he's telling us about things that are coming tomorrow within our lifetimes that are going to occur and we have ears and eyes to see and to take advantage and to be ready. Because we're here to prepare for this. We're here to be here when these people start coming. That's why God gave us this ahead of time. No one else knows it because they weren't the prep crew. We know it because we are. And we can tell the story. And when they come, we'll be here for them. God willing, and we do our part, we'll be here. So, this is about us, brethren. It's not about somebody else. It's about us. It's about the remnant that God is about to call, and it's about the church that is spittle and don't 
take it to heart what has really happened to them, still claiming they're Philadelphian, and that everybody else is the bad guy except them. No. We were bad guys too. We got spewed too. We're repenting, I hope. And I hope that we're prepared to do God's work that He's revealing to us ahead of time. And we can be here to help with the work that He is going to do. So let's stop there for today.